This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys uh, here this morning. Yesterday, obviously, was a, was a heavy day for a lot of us as Americans um, as we mark the, the 20th anniversary. Can you believe it's been 20 years since uh, the attacks of September 11th? And it was an odd day for me. We, this last week, we became uh, Georgia homeowners officially, so we closed uh, on a house here. So I guess... Now I need to get like our vehicles registered in Georgia. So I've put that off. But I don't know, as much as I signed to get in a house, I'm not sure how long it may take. So, um, but so we were busy with, uh, with some of the house issues and still packing. If packing were an Olympic sport, my wife would certainly qualify. Um, running kids around sports and jobs. So I sort of was, um, I was torn. I, I wanted to engage some of the stuff on TV, but uh, part of me just didn't did not want to go back there uh, fully. So last night, I just decided I would uh, I would observe by watching the Yankees and the Mets game. So, but even before it started, I was tearing up over there. I was a mess. So um, I know we all remember if you were uh, at least an adult, then you remember where you were uh, on that day. And it didn't just change America; it changed the world. Uh, the entire world uh, has a before 9/11 history and an after 9/11 history, and we understand that we are still engaged uh, in a global fight, uh, in a sense, a global war and a philosophical war. Um, so just, I would encourage you uh, to continue praying today. Just lift up today the families uh, of those that were lost on 9-11 and the families who have experienced so many uh, lost uh, servicemen and women uh, across the years since, because this is a heavy weekend for them. Now, for us, we come to the close of our series made for purpose, made for purpose. And we, we talked about kingdom-focused um, kingdom ministry in the church. We talked about kingdom-focused vocation in the world, not as things that are good ideas, but are things for which you were created and designed, right? And to the degree that you are not practicing that. And we said last week that vocation in the world for you right now, it, it may look like uh, taking care of a spouse at home. It may look like just you taking care of a home and yourself, but doing that with a heart uh, and a mind fixed on Christ. You may be a student, uh, and so God's called you to be in the place where you are now vocationally at school and for you to see and do and operate uh, all that you do in school through the lens of Christ and his kingdom. It really does change it, right? This morning we're going to talk about kingdom-focused generosity, uh, and I want you to know that to the degree that you and I choose just not to engage in one of these areas, it's a little bit like driving with one flat tire. And I know some of you have, have done that for a little ways. It's very unpleasant. Cars are not meant to function and to ride and to drive along on only three tires. And that's how our lives are when we decide, look, God, I will not trust you in this area. For, for whatever myriad of reasons I have, I'm going to dance my own dance in this way. Let's look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 this morning. And we're going to find Jesus 
addressing a young man, a story that many of us know, and if you don't know it, uh, you know a phrase or two from uh, this encounter that Jesus had in the gospel of Mark chapter 10. Mark, one of the, the gospel books in the Bible, one of the, the, the books that are primarily biographical about Jesus' life and work. Now, even if you're not familiar with the encounter, maybe you haven't read it personally or, or been uh, somewhere where it was being read and taught on, you likely know the phrase rich young ruler or rich young man, which the Bible will use. You often uh, uh, will know another phrase too, that it's uh, harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of what? A needle. Yeah, a needle. And so we're, gonna, we're going to look at what Jesus teaches about this and how this impacts our lives. Because I'll tell you at the very front end, so much of your life, of your thinking, of your actions, are centered around the subject of money and possessions in your life. And any of us that deny that are just sort of living in a fantasy land. Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it, and so he addressed it often. Let's look at Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read 17 through 27. Uh, That's the the encounter between Jesus and a rich young man, and then Jesus addressed to his disciples, and then come back, and we're going to work our way through it, and I'll leave you with a couple of challenges this morning. Let's go look at Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up, to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Pay attention to that. That's going to be important in a few minutes. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All right, so we we have this picture of Jesus traveling. He's going about his earthly ministry. And this rich young man or rich young ruler comes up, probably good looking. I mean, you can be young and rich without being good looking, but it's hard. Usually those three things go together. So this guy is one of those people we just enjoy hating. He comes up and he falls on his knees before Jesus in, in a posture of humility 
and submission. And I just will make a few observations and kind of frame what we're looking at around these observations. The first is this one, um, that at the center of this young man's issue is the fact that he trusts in his morality. He trusts in his morality. This is what we see when he says, teacher, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And first century Jewish rabbis taught on this regularly. And this man would have known the answer. Don't sin or stop sinning and follow the commandments. It was kind of the the typical mantra of Jewish rabbis in that day. And trusting in his morality, he's thinking, okay, I've kept all these commandments. Remember Jesus ran through some of the commandments. He's like, yep, I'm good. I've got that. He's young, rich, probably good looking and confident, right? He's like, I've kept all them. But Jesus asked him a question. Notice verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now this has bothered people um, at times throughout history and and sometimes may have bothered you. But I'll tell you this, Jesus is not saying he's not good. Jesus is not saying God the Father is good and I'm not good. He's saying God alone is good. Is good, and Jesus is making a statement about his own identity. He's not disagreeing with the young man, he's agreeing with the young man, but wondering if this man has any idea what he's really talking about. In fact, he's giving him the opportunity to answer the question Who do you say that I am? Are you coming to me simply as a teacher that you consider a fair and adequate teacher, or are you coming to me and attributing this word that can only be attributed to God to me? Because you know who I am. And he's challenging him a little bit as he comes to him with this trust in his own morality. What can I do? Basically, what can I do to be made right with God? He's asking a religious question. Because this is what religion teaches. This is what you must do. To be right before God. This is what you must do to work your way to God. But the gospel is this whole other thing. The gospel says this is what God in his grace and mercy and love has done to work his way to you. This is what God in his generosity has done for you. Religion is a list of what you must do. The gospel is an announcement, a declaration of what God has done in human history for the salvation of all who will believe and the redemption and restoration of his broken creation. This man is coming to Jesus, the center of the gospel, the good news of God, and he's asking him a religious question. What do I have to do? Because apparently what he had done so far had worked. He was confident in his abilities. Jesus runs through a list of the commandments. And the man says, teacher, he declared all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, here's a real important thing just to notice. There is typically an attitude. There's one among the poor and there's one among the rich. Typically among the rich, now this is not everyone who's rich and this is not everyone who's poor, right? 
but these are, are categorical ways of thinking. Typically, the rich will inevitably begin to think, those who are, are financially well off, uh, if poorer people just worked harder and made better decisions, they too could be rich. It's a matter of work ethic or wisdom on their part. And poor people will typically think they couldn't be rich if they hadn't trampled on people and operated unjustly throughout their lifetime taking advantage of the poor. And part of what we see here is that's not true in this young man's case. Jesus doesn't rebut his acceptance of the fact that he hasn't defrauded anybody, he hasn't stolen, he's not been improper with his money. That's not his issue here. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Whew. It, it's okay that, that all this pressure's on the rich because I'm not rich. All right? Most of us in here are like, that's right. It's going to be a quick one and we'll be out to lunch. Because we're not rich. So it's okay that it's harder for a rich person to get in the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Makes no matter to me. All right? Because I'm rolling pennies for gas money broke. But is, is it possible that we, we're rich and we don't know it? And I mean that monetarily. I'm not talking sort of in love or whatever. Um, is it possible that we're rich and we don't know it? Part of the beauty of the Google age, and there's a lot that's not beautiful about it, but part of what is, is you can find out almost anything. So I want to throw out some numbers to you really quickly. I'll start with one that, uh, for some of you, it may be small ball. For, for many of us, it, it will be um, uh, pretty high. But imagine you have a household, combined household income, if you're married. So you and your spouse. Maybe it's just you and, and, and this is you. But your, your total household income is $150,000. $150,000. Did you know that that puts you in the top 1% of the world's population? The top 1%, you're one of those nasty, evil people, one percenters. The top 1% of the world's population, if you bring home before taxes, $150,000 in your home. But So I thought, well, what if we cut that in half? $75,000. $75,000 in combined household income puts you in the top 2%. Top 2% of the world's population. So what if we cut that in half? Half of 75000 is what? $37,500? You're still in the top 8% of the world's population. 92% of people are poorer than you. And if you own one car, just one, you're in the top 4% of the world's population. Now, can I tell you, this matters because God loves the world, right? God is not Eurocentric. He's not North American-centric. The entire world belongs to God. Could it be that we're rich and we just don't know it, right? I mean, how many, you don't have to raise your hands on this. How many of us in here own more than one TV, more than one computer, more than one refrigerator, more than one home? Could it be that you actually are rich and you just don't know it? You're not aware? 
You know, there are places in the world where, most places in the world, in fact, where water is a really, really serious commodity. The ability to get fresh water to drink and to use is really, really difficult. But uh, we don't have this here in Georgia because you just don't need it enough. God provides the sprinklers um, in Georgia in most places. But where we moved from in San Antonio, almost every, uh, at least middle class house or beyond, had a little box in the garage. And that little box in the garage could be tweaked so that these things shot out of the ground at certain times during the week and sprayed water all over your grass just to keep it green. Do you realize how absurd that is to most people in the world? That we have the ability to automatically have fresh water pop up out the ground and water our grass whenever we want just so it looks the way we want it to look? Could it be that you're rich and you just don't know it? Teacher, verse 20, he declared, all these things I've kept. And then Jesus looked at him and loved him. Before Jesus issues this challenge, he looks at him and he loves them. And this is not just because Jesus loves everyone. I think Jesus can identify with this rich young man. Jesus is around 30, 31 at this time. He's a young man. Jesus knows what it's like to be wealthy. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, the triune God, who held everything at his fingertips and holds all things together now, creator, sustainer of everything that exists, had laid that down, had left that behind and stepped out to follow his heavenly Father and to serve the low and the poor, you and me. Andrew Walls, who is, um, he's passed away now, but he was a, a really sharp professor at Princeton and a devout follower of Jesus. He, his studies focused on the, the history of global Christianity. And he did an interview some years back where he was uh, asked somehow about the, the movement of the center of Christianity, how most world religions are centered today right where they were centered when they were founded, right? So Islam started in Arabia. It's still centered. The center of it is still in Arabia. Hinduism, Buddhism started in the east. They are still centered in the east. But that's not true of Christianity. Christianity starts in the ancient Near East, in Jerusalem, and in that area. And it begins to spread from there. And it's centered there for hundreds of years. And it, the center of it begins to spread as the barbaric, unwashed Northern Europeans, Western Europeans, begin to convert in droves. And the center of Christianity begins shifting. And it shifts and stays for about a thousand years in Europe and later in North America. And now it's shifting and almost completely shifted again. The center has moved out of Europe, out of North America, and gone into Africa, Asia, and Latin America. By 2030, that shift will be complete, and the center of Christianity will be entirely in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. It's amazing. In 1900, the continent of Africa had around... 1% of its population as confessing Christians. Today it has over 50% of the population of the continent of 
Africa. And when asked about that and why that is, Andrew Hall said, because at the heart of the gospel, the, the center of Christianity is the cross. And he said this, he said that the cross is all about giving up power and pouring out resources and serving. And so when the church and when the center of Christianity finds itself in a place where it has influence and power and affluence, the dangerous, powerful, revolutionary message of sin and forgiveness and atonement and restoration gets tamed. It loses its power. It gets institutionalized and calmed. It becomes respectable and appropriate. And the message moves on. We know that within the next 10 years, there will be far, far, far more missionaries sent from the margins, what we would consider the margins, from developing countries to the rich and affluent and influential West, Western Europe and North America, then Europe and North America are sending combined anywhere else. This is the nature of the gospel. Jesus poured himself out in love for you and for me. And he relates to this young man who has all that he could want, ask, or imagine at his fingertips. And now he's confronted with God. We saw early on that he trusts in his morality, but I want to tell you also that he trusts in his money. He trusts in his money. Jesus gives him this challenge to sell it all and give it away and follow him. And verse 22 says, at this, at this challenge, the man's face fell. He went away sad. And sad is not a strong enough word. Um, this word here is akin to Jesus suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. The man is downcast. He's distraught because he had great wealth. Now, let me say this real quickly. God doesn't have a problem with wealth. God has a problem with idolatry. This is the real challenge of money and material possessions. It's not the money or the material possessions themselves. They're amoral. You can do great things with them, or you can do bad things with them. But Jesus is teaching a truth here that you can't water down, that the vast majority of the time, great wealth holds its owner. Its owner doesn't hold it. Great wealth clouds the heart and the minds of human beings. And they can't see God and they don't sense a need for the gospel apart from the powerful working of God in their lives. God doesn't have a problem with wealth. He has a problem with idolatry. This man's money wasn't just money. It was what it represented to him. That's what this word that we just kind of translate sad here means. He's sad. He's, he is distraught. He's dismayed because his money represents so more than just money. When money is just money, it doesn't matter how much of it you have. But rarely is money just money. This is such a big deal to Jesus because most often, it's not that we have a wealth problem. We have a trust problem. 
we have a trust problem. You guys have heard me read this before, but I'll tell you why. And I know maybe this is your first time joining us here. Maybe it's your first time in a while, or maybe you're new and you're like, Gee, you know, every time I come to church, they're talking about money. I would just say to you, welcome. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. We don't talk about it near as much as Jesus did. Roughly 30% of his entire ministry was spent talking about money and material possessions. It's a big, big deal. Let me tell you why Jesus cares so much about it. Matthew chapter 6, 24, Jesus tells us that no one can serve two masters, right? Nobody can serve two masters. He says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is powerful. And I've said this before. You would think you would expect Jesus to say you cannot serve both God and Satan or good and evil, but he doesn't. He says you cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus says this. Jesus says this because God has no greater competition for the trust and affection of your heart than money. None. And not money itself, but all that money promises, the doors that it opens, the false sense of security and self-worth and importance. God has no greater competition for the trust and affection of your heart than money. And that is true regardless of your income level. Regardless of your income level. Jesus issues this challenge to him to go and to give away and sell everything that he has. He turns it down, walks away, and then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, man, it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And let me just tell you, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I know from having spent 10, 12 years as a home missionary and a church planter in the United States that one of the things you learn as you're being assessed and trained is not to waste money and resources on higher income subdivisions because they rarely respond. And we all have a limited pool of resources, right? So when you're starting a church and you're trying to reach people with the gospel, it is biblically wise to sow the most seed where the soil has shown itself to most often be most ready. And that is not in the higher income subdivisions. It is not in the older subdivisions where people have lived a long time. Many of them have decided a long time ago whether or not they're going to church and why or why not, and they're done. What Jesus is stating is just an absolute reality, and he states it so strongly. So strongly. His disciples were amazed. Here's why his disciples were amazed. Because they still had what we would call today a prosperity theology. They're like, here's this rich young man. He's clearly rich because he's done the right things and God has blessed him. He's lived the right way. He's avoided sin. He's honored God and so God has blessed him and this is why he's rich. We would call that a prosperity theology. But God doesn't lead us toward a prosperity theology or a poverty theology. But he absolutely calls us to a generosity theology. He models that. Not only in the incarnation and the cross or at the very creation itself, but every day in your life and my life and his provision for us. 
God is modeling the generosity that characterizes him and is to characterize his people. Now, one of, one of the ways that you know you have an issue with money is if you cannot regularly, joyfully give generously. Whatever your excuse is, right? I don't make enough, I've got debt, um, all these other things. My favorite one is like, well, the Bible doesn't, you know, the New Testament doesn't tell me to tithe. Uh, there's all kinds of things, but, but all of the biblical teaching around money and the reason that God has, has set kind of a base standard as the training wheels of generosity around that 10% mark is so that it's not left up for you to decide whether you're generous or greedy because you'll always think you're generous. None of us ever think we're greedy, ever. We always think we have solid reasons why we spend so much on ourselves and so little on others. God doesn't leave it up to you. But also, you know you've got a problem with money if you constantly obsess and worry over it. See, those are are two different ends of the issues with money. That reveals to you, and you'll have to dig around prayerfully before the Lord to figure this out because it, it is different for each one of us. But that reveals to you that money is just not money. Money is representing other things in your life that God has not given money the weight to carry. So either you can't give generously and joyfully and consistently, or you worry and obsess over money all the time. Both of those are indicators that you've got an issue with money. And remember again, this is not a wealth problem. This is a trust problem. So he, he trusts in his morality. He trusts in his money. The last kind of way I would frame this passage is that he is challenged by Jesus to trust ultimately in Jesus as his master. Not his morality, not his money, but Jesus as his master. This is the challenge that Jesus gives. And Jesus is not teaching all of us to sell all of our things and to give all of our money to the poor. Right? Some people got to pay for things. That's just how it is. And throughout the movement of the kingdom of God, throughout the movement of the local church, there have been regular faithful men and women tithing and beyond who understand the place of money in their life, who understand salvifically what God has done for you as he's redeemed you in Jesus Christ and they give consistently. And then there have been high earners that God has gifted and God has has captured their heart and not allowed their money to blind them. And he's used them throughout the history of the church to bring his kingdom forward in leaps and bounds at times. It's not about how much you make. It's about how much you trust God with what you make. Now, his disciples are amazed, and he reminds them again in verse 24 as he's challenged this man to put his ultimate trust in Jesus as master. And he says, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? And then he says this phrase that is so familiar. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was a colloquialism that Jesus was using. We have similar colloquialisms today like, let's say the Falcons don't have a snowball's chance in hell. It's a place, not a bad word, people, in this instance, of beating the bucks or fill in the blank. So what we're saying when we say something doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell is a snowball can't make it in a place of the highest temperature, right? 
Jesus is being very serious here, and it is a word of warning to us that the higher our income and the higher our material, material wealth, generally the more danger our soul is in because it typically has us. We don't have it. And you may have heard this. Uh, you may have heard someone say, well, you know, around the city wall of Jerusalem, there was a little cutout. There was a specific gate. There's a small gate. And, you know, you could get a camel through it, but it was really hard. That's just not true. That's the problem with that. That's just not accurate. Jesus is saying here what we think Jesus is saying. At, they had needles in their day. He's saying you can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. And again, this pertains to all of us on a global scale. We are all wealthy. We've got far more, far more than most of the rest of the world could ever imagine. And certainly far more than all those in human history could imagine. And this danger exists for all of us. This is why when the disciples are amazed and they're like, well, who can be saved then? So they're like, hey, if this rich guy who's clearly been blessed by God can't enter the kingdom of heaven, there's no chance for us. And here's what Jesus says. With man, it is impossible. In other words, he says, left to your own devices, with material affluence, with an abundance of wealth, yes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The human heart will never reach out when you can so readily, easily meet all of your demands and almost all of your wishes. But not with God. Not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus says the wealthier we are, the more of God it takes to get and keep our attention in his grace and mercy and goodness. Or what we own will own us. Jesus' call to generous living here is not just to this young man. Part of what he's trying to get him to see, what he was trying to get him to see, and what he's trying to get us to see is that he's the only treasure that will treasure you back. You put your treasure in your work, your work won't treasure you back. You put your treasure in your kids and your family and the, the perfection and the beauty of that, your kids and your family won't treasure you back. They're going to go off on their own and build their own lives, and some of them may twist off. You put your treasure in your own abilities, your own looks. Have you ever noticed that eventually that lets everyone down? Ability looks, it all is headed south. It's just a matter of time. But Jesus is saying, don't let your heart, your treasure be in these things that you can lose. That's why this is such a big deal. That's why such a, this is such a big deal. Jesus said, going back to Matthew 24, you cannot serve both God and money. In that same chapter, Jesus says that wherever your treasure is, there's your heart also. This is why giving is such a big deal. This is why you and I can say whatever we want to, and it doesn't matter. Jesus says our giving directly affects our hearts. That men and women changed by God are generous men and women. They don't seek to make excuses or control. They give 
back generously and in so doing help guard their own hearts and souls from greed and from the disillusion that wealth can bring. See, it's not about what God wants from you. It's always about what God wants for you. It's about what God wants for you. If he's a creator and sustainer of all things, he doesn't need anything from you. But you need something from him. This challenge to trust in Jesus as master when he says, go sell everything and give to the poor and follow me. He rejects. And it's sad. I want to challenge you to do a couple of things this morning. We sang a few minutes ago, nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Do you, be- do you believe that? Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Do you believe that God is ultimately your provider, your sustainer? This is serious stuff. It's about joy. It's about freedom. It's about gospel formation. So, man, I'm going to give you a a quick money challenge and then a prayer challenge. Well, let me flip that because some of you will need more prayer in the beginning. And can I just say, like, if you've been here a member for a long time and you're not giving, shame on you. Start giving, right? When you become a member, you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. You are or you aren't. If you are, your money ought to reveal that that's true. Or your money may reveal that that's simply not true. That maybe you've sat in church for years or decades, but you still feel like you run your own life. I don't know. But I'd say this. Any of us in here who want to follow Jesus or profess to follow Jesus, if you're not giving, you need to start giving. You need to start giving. You need to surrender that area of your life to God and trust him. Because it's not just about giving. It's about Debt. It's about marital stress. It's about the legacy you're leaving your children. It's so much bigger than money. When you look at the Bible as a whole, the Bible says give first. It honors God. Save second. That builds margin over time and live on the rest, which trains and teaches you in contentment. You need to be giving. Some of you need to step it up. Some of you, like, you're giving great, man. You know you're giving sacrificially, consistently, joyfully. Just thank God for that. I've shared with you before that tithing, giving 10% of our income, that doesn't stretch Sharon and I. We've been doing that since we've been married. That's easy. We've got to give more to be in that place where we say we're really trusting God to provide for us and to meet the needs that remain. Second thing, and this I would challenge all of us with, is to pray a simple prayer we're going to put up on the screen. And it goes like this. Father, help me not to trust in riches, but trust in Jesus who loves me richly. Father, help me not to trust in riches, but in Jesus who loves me richly. Let me ask you to stand. And I just want to ask us all, if we would, let's just say this together. Because all of us, regardless of income level, stage in life, Whether you're a super high earner right now or you're dependent upon a Social Security check every month or somewhere in between, we all need this reminder. Let's just say this together. Let's go. Father, help me not to trust in riches, but in Jesus who loves me richly. Let's pray.
Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.